What is up, guys? My name is KJ, and this is Why Theology. I'm sure by now, if you hear from the sound quality, the Lord has definitely blessed me with a new microphone. And so at first, a little funny joke, I was just simply using my phone to record these episodes, but now the Lord has blessed me with a new microphone. And so hopefully, um, in the near future episodes, the sound quality overall of the podcast episodes will be even better. And so I just thank the Lord. Um, I started off this podcast simply, which is crazy story, in my closet recording episodes. But to see kind of how people have, you know, interacted with this podcast and see how kind of Lord has blessed it, different listeners all over in America, it's just kind of amazing to see the Lord done. And so I was able to do a season one, and now we're still continuing season two. And so one of those episodes, in fact, that I did in season one was titled um, "A Case for Historic Premillennium." Now. I wouldn't be walking through a series title or a case for something if I didn't actually hold to that position myself. And so I just want to say again that I do believe in historic pre-millennium. Now, the issue that we're dealing with, as you guys know, is something called eschatology. And so before I talk about that, I actually have a lot of free time right now because, you know, where I'm at, if it's in Arkansas. And so I'm snowed in in my, my apartment right now, so I have a lot of free time. And so I was like, hmm. Let me go ahead and continue this series. And I know I promised that I would do, you know, a part two. If you guys listen to the episode, I said I promised that I would kind of give a historical background as far as what the early church fathers believed about this position. But I'm going to wait for the episode and kind of hold it back. Let's just deal kind of with the scripture first. Then I'll get to this historical background because I believe scripture comes first over history. So history doesn't trump the scriptures, but rather scripture trumps his history. And so, again, I have a lot of free time right now, and so I'll be hopefully releasing more episodes. I took a break for a while because I was working on sermons, but also just working on, you know, just spending time with the Lord. And so now I'm definitely will be able to be back uh, next week. I'll be releasing episodes as scheduled through Revelation and also through the Confession on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But for right now, let's deal with this issue, or not even issue, but this topic of eschatology. Again, season one, I think my very first episode I talked about eschatology, and so all I had to do was simply go stop this episode right now <laughs> and go back to that episode and listen to that uh, episode about what is eschatology. And so some of these terms, such as millennium or rapture or a thousand years, I kind of talk about that in that episode. And so if you go back and listen to it, you kind of be caught up. And now if you have heard that episode you, and you haven't you know, listened to the first episode about a case for a story premium, you probably should stop this episode right now and go listen to that one, then come back. So you definitely be caught up. And so, again, if you have, you know, been paying attention, I guess, or not paying attention, but listening <laughs> to the podcast, then you would know kind of what eschatology is, but also you kind of have a, a decent background of kind of what historic pre-millennial is. And so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today, a case for historic pre-millennial. And so oftentimes, you know, there's a lot of common misconceptions about people who hold to this view. And so I just kind of wanted to kind of um, dismantle in a nice way, I guess, some of those common misconceptions about people who hold to this view. Now, again, I'm not standing for what is called dispensational, you know, pre-mill or dispensationalism. That's not the goal here. My goal is to present a biblical case of what I feel like the Bible presents for us as far as eschatology concern. And I believe that is historic premium or what the church fathers call Kiliasm or the church fathers are known as Kiliasm. But the position I presented today is what's known as Kiliasm. 
And so, like all places, it's probably good to start in the scriptures first, and let's kind of go from there. So we, we'll be, I guess, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 15, a lot of verses, but what's more fun and walking to the Bible, right? So let's look at these verses real quick. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 15, it says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding a key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil in Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life in reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And he threw, and he threw, threw them into the abyss. But let me go back. <laughs> then I saw it says, um, I think I missed the. No, I saw, it says this. Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And he threw them into the abyss and shut it. And set it over him, the devil, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of earth, Gog and Magog, to gather together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of, of the seashore. And I came out to the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil whom deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beasts and false prophets are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, for whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the thrones, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged for the things which were written in these books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the death, the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. So that was Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. I had a bad problem early because um reading off my iPad, and so my iPad took, I think, verse 2 and 3 out of it and put it out of place, and so that threw me off a little bit. So please forgive me there, guys. Um, but with that being said, you guys could just go look at Revelation 20, verse 1 through 15. You guys can see kind of where I messed up in verse 2 and 3. But the first thing that we can discuss is the idea of a millennium. Again, I talked about this, I believe, in my episode about, you know, what is eschatology and also the case for historic premium. And so, again, what we're dealing with today is eschatology, and that is a study of last things. Now, Eschatology done proper, um, or I guess the teaching of eschatology done proper is simply more than just the study of last things. It encompasses more than just what we're dealing with today in Revelation 20. 
But for the sake of this, the simple definition of eschatology today will be simply the study of last things. And many times when people say eschatology and you say, you know, what's the definition of eschatology? People often say the study of last things. So that's what we're dealing with today. Now, the first thing that we need to discuss is what does the word millennium mean? Because I'll be using that word quite often throughout this episode. And so today I'm going to be going to be teaching this position, I guess, in light of the other two positions. Now, I know, I guess, today in our day and age, there is four positions. Uh, you guys know those positions are all-meal, post-meal, pre-meal. But there's two forms of pre-meal. Really, there's a lot of forms of pre-meal because you can be pre-raf or post and all the different things. But simply for the sake of argument, there is dispensationalism and there is what I am, which is historic pre-meal. Now, again, none of these titles make us you know, greater Christians of one another. We're all doing this, I guess, it's in-house, even though it's not really a debate. It's just really trying to see what does the scripture teach. And so all of us will go to heaven, even though we may have been army or postman or premier here on earth, we'll all be one in Christ in heaven. So don't let this, um, the logical debate that's been going on for centuries, divide you and your brothers and sisters in the faith over theology. It's not that serious. But I understand there is a need and want for the truth and so hopefully um, what I lay out today before you guys kind of help you in that area, I definitely could be wrong. And so don't listen to KJ. Go kind of look and see kind of what the word of God teaches you yourself. But again, what does the word millennium mean as we get to discuss this? If you guys recall, Revelation 20, the number of thousand was repeated over seven times. So the word millennium is simply a Latin word for a thousand. Now, there's three ways that I talked about just earlier how we are to interpret this number a thousand. And so this number a thousand, first off, it describes the millennium kingdom over which Christ is reigning with his people. Now, again, those three positions, positions are pre-mill, post-mill, and amill. And so what is a pre-millennial? So someone who holds the position of pre-mill or pre-millennium simply, I guess you can define it this way that they would say that the coming, uh, the second coming of Christ occurs before or pre the thousand years seen in Revelation 20. So essentially what someone who believes pre-mill simply just interprets uh, the chapter of 19 and uh, 20 of Revelation as literal. So basically just simply reading verses, uh, chapter 19 and 20, sequential, but also literal. You would come to the conclusion that Christ he will return pre-millennium uh, or pre or before, I meant to say, a thousand years. And so basically, this millennium is a kingdom in sense that Christ is reigning here on earth. And so this kingdom that we're dealing with right now, the millennium kingdom, um, the position again, pre-mill states that Christ will return before this kingdom. He will actually be the one setting up this kingdom. And so he will return first and then he will personally set up the kingdom here on earth where he'll be reigning with his saints. And so that's the position of pre-mill. Now the position of post-mill, which is the opposite of pre-mill, I'm pretty sure you guys with common sense would know that if Christ uh, returned before and that's pre, then post means that Christ will return after. And that's definitely correct. So post-mill simply means that the return of Christ comes after the millennium. Now, post-mill is used the belief, again, that Christ returns after a period of time, but not necessarily is it to be interpreted 
how I would interpret it as a literal number or a literal thousand years. But people who hold this position often believe that the number um, a thousand year is not to be interpreted literal, but rather figuratively or symbolic for a long period of time. And so basically people who hold this position, it's kind of, um, I guess you would say what many all meals or what I'm going to talk about again, pre-meal, we have, I guess, what is known as a pessimistic view of how the world ends. Now, there's some all meal and some pre-meal who are optimistic about you know, the last things, I guess. But for myself, I'm more pessimistic. Now, I do think there will be a widespread of the gospel going forward now until Christ comes. So I am optimistic in that sense. But I don't think there will be people, a lot of people coming to faith to the extent that I can say that I'm a post-meal. So post-meal, what they would say is that in the time period until now, until Christ comes, through the spirit of the gospel, there will be a Christianization of the gospel going forward. So basically the gospel will be conquering into the ends of the world and there'll be a widespread of people coming to faith. So much to the point where we will personally bring about the kingdom that's spoken about here in chapter 20 on earth. And at the end of that kingdom, Christ will return. And so the post meal, they're very optimistic in their view of the last things. Now I'm pretty sure a lot of things that's kind of gotten them in trouble, people who hold this position, is that they would kind of say that the world's going to get better and better and better. But around us, you guys see that the, no, the, world's, the, world, the world's getting worse and worse and worse. So as time continues to go on, there's people who are less holding to that position. Again, as the world around us is getting worse and worse, people have stopped holding on to that position. But that's kind of essentially what uh, Postman believe. Again, that there will be a widespread of gospel going forward until now until Christ returns. Now, they also believe that the devil right now, Lucifer, the Satan, serpent, the God is whatever you want to call him, they will say that he is bound right now. That is why the gospel is able to go forward. And they also share that um, belief with the next position I'll talk about. Um, and again, they would not interpret the word a thousand to be a literal number, but rather figuratively or symbolically for a long period of time. And so, again, they will hold to the world's going to get better and better and better as the gospel goes forward and Christians out of the nation. Basically, all the people come to faith and we will bring about a kingdom here on earth and Christ will turn after or post millennium. And so in contrast with this, the more uh, pessimistic view, I guess you would say, is kind of similar to post mill. But many people hold the army will not say that the world's going to get better and better around us, but rather worse and worse and worse. And so I share that kind of with many of my Amen brothers that we're kind of in agreement on that right now we're all in tribulation. This is a time of suffering. The church has actually always been in suffering and you look at the Bible. And so I kind of share that with my Amen brothers. But what is Amen? So Amen means, I guess, no millennium or no a thousand years. You guys see the, the A in front of the millennium. That means no. You guys know what an atheist is. A theist is someone who believes in one God, or I guess you would say, you put an A in front of that, you have an atheist, which means no belief in God. Giving you guys the simple definitions, but here you put the A in front of millennium, that means no millennium. And now, oftentimes that word, I guess no millennium or no a thousand years, people who are amil, they would never say they don't believe in the millennium. And so now, what many people today hold to what is called as realized millennium. 
And so they are still Amils, but they will hold to that even though they are Amil, they believe in what is known as a realized William. And essentially what that means is right now, currently, they would say that right now, currently, we're all living in the millennium. Now, I'm not taking shots at no one, but simply I'm just trying to do my best to lay these positions out there so you guys can do your own research, kind of see um, what it is you feel like the Bible is saying. And so Amil is not anything new, in fact. It's often it's actually been the majority position throughout church history. Um, as you guys uh, probably hear later in another episode, it started um, with a man named Origen. Then it went to another church father. These were, these are all church fathers, by the way. Started with Origen. Then it went to another church father named Eusephus. And then it went to the the big guy. His name is Augustine. Now some call him Augustine, and he kind of was the one that kind of helped spread this view of Amil or realized millennium. And so actually, this has actually been the, the more um, reformed or Protestant view throughout church history. And it's often held by the you know, Eastern Orthodox churches today and many Roman Catholic churches. And so this is also the view of reformers such as Calvin and Luther. Now, the idea here, again, is not that people who hold this position don't believe that there is no millennium at all. They just do not believe in a literal thousand year reign here on Christ on earth. Instead, they believe that we are to symbolize or allegorize the word a thousand to represent a long period of time. So for I'm ableist, Christ is now seating on the throne of David. And this present age, which we're currently in or are living in, is which the kingdom of Christ reigns over right now. And so for them, this present age or this millennium that we're all living in, Christ at this moment is currently reigning through the hearts of his believers in the church. And so because Christ is seated at the right hand at the right hand of the Father on the throne of David, he is currently again reigning through the heart of his believers in the church. That must mean that Satan is currently bound. Now, the phrase, you know, or that Satan is bound, that does not convey the idea that he is removed from the earth but simply that Jesus' death on the cross defeated him. You guys know, um, for example, they would say, um, I don't know you guys are country like me at times, but I used to, I live in the country for a little bit, and so I've seen many snakes. My stepdad, he would, we had many snakes in our garage, and what he would do is he'd get a shovel and cut the head off the snake. But if you guys know anything about snakes, if you cut the head off a snake, it still lives for a period of time. And so essentially what many Amir brothers would say is that even though right now Satan is bound, He's still roaming about active here on earth. And so essentially what they're saying is, uh, let me give you a couple baskets for that. So Genesis 3.15, Matthew 12.29, John 12, verse 31, John 16.11, Hebrews 2.14, and Colossians 1.16. The phrase that he's bound here does not mean that Satan's removed from the earth, but simply Christ's death on the cross is feeding him. But like snakes here today, even though their heads cut off, they still have a little power and reign until eventually they die. And that's kind of what the word bound means or conveys here for the odd millenniums. We may say bound from what? He is bound in this sense that he cannot deceive the nations. And that is in verse three. He cannot prevent the gospel from going forward. That is keeping the elect of God from coming into the church. Now, for myself, like I told you guys, I am uh, a little bit closer to the Amil side than I am the postmill side. Like I told you guys, I am optimistic in this sense that I do feel like right now, until Christ come, until Christ comes forward, I mean comes again, <laughs> there will be a widespread of the gospel. 
but I, I do not think this widespread of the gospel would through this widespread of the gospel that a lot of people will come to faith so much to the point that we will be able to Christianize the entire world with the gospel. That's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that many will fall away from the gospel. But uh, like my Amen brothers, I do feel like from what the scriptures tell us that the devil is currently bound. But I don't feel like the binding that happened at the cross or throughout the scriptures is the same binding that we see here in chapter 20. But that would probably be the next episode. Now, again, both the post mill and Amil's, they view this binding as the same thing. And so that's just kind of how um, Amil, um, that's kind of what the position is for Amil. So hopefully I was able to accurately um, kind of put that out there again. Amil does not, they don't believe that there is, they do believe there's a millennium, but rather this millennium is more of a realized millennium because again, right now we're currently in this millennium. This present church age that we're living in right now or age is the millennium as the gospel is going for, the devil is bound, the church or the elect of God are coming into the church and the devil cannot stop the gospel from penetrating, penetrating the hearts of believers. And so this age right now is the millennium and Christ is now reigning through the hearts of his believers in this church. And so again, I do believe right now Christ is reigning through his church and the hearts of believers. And again, Satan is bound in this sense that he cannot in fact keep the gospel from going forward. But again, I will talk about that in the next episode. Now, today, my uh, main case here again is to present a case for what is known as historic pre-mill. And so uh, if you guys haven't heard the last episode, I guess it'd be a good idea to kind of define what historic pre-mill is. First, as you know, I guess dispensationalism. Now, the reason why it's titled historic pre-mill is for two reasons. The first is number one. I mean, we think now today it is my goal and aim to teach on what is known as historic pre-mill. And again, um, probably complete start. You know why the name historic pre-mill? Now the reason why it's called or titled historic pre-mill is for two reasons. Number one is it's historic in this sense that it was held by the early Christians who lived during the time of the apostles. As you guys know, all the apostles died, but there was one who was still left after the death of Jesus, who was, of course, John the Apostle, who wrote the book of Revelation. As you guys know, through church history, if you guys don't know, John had two disciples. And these two disciples also held to what is known as historic pre-mill. And so for the vast majority of the church, through three centuries after the death of John, um, they all held to what is known as Kilius. Kilius, my man. They were known as Kilius, and it's simply just pre-millennials. And so they all believe that Christ will return pre or before the millennium kingdom, and he would set up a kingdom here on earth. And so um, this is why it's called historic pre-mill, because the church or the early Christians all believed in pre-millennium. Now, the second reason why it's called historic pre-mill is to differentiate it between dispensationalism. Now, dispensationalism can be interpreted in two ways. Number one, as what is known as biblical theology. Now, biblical theology is simply looking at the Bible from beginning to end, and it differs from systematic theology. As you guys know, systematic theology is looking at the Bible through different topics or systems of theology, such as um, God's attributes. You even have eschatology in there. You have a lot of different things as far as how to group the Bible through systems of theology. 
But biblical theology is rather liquor in the Bible from beginning to end. Now, with dispensationalists, they typically view the Bible through seven periods of dispensations. In these seven periods, dispensations is how God deals with the people. And so you have seven different time periods of how God deals with the people. One of those time periods is the age of innocence. You have an age of law. You have an age of human government, I believe. And you have an age of like, you know, um, grace or the church age. There are seven different periods of those. And so usually when you think of dispensationism, you think of those seven basic people who hold to that biblical theology view. And so dispensationalists uh, get like, a, I guess, a bad rep if you say, you know, you believe in dispensationalism and the eschatological view, it kind of gets a bad rep. But uh, for the sake of argument, we're not talking about the dispensationalism as a, as a view as far as biblical theology concerned, but more of the eschatological view. And so typically people who hold to dispensationalism, they would um, believe in what is known as a preacher rapture. Now, I talk about this in my very first episode on what is eschatology. So go look at that episode. And that's actually kind of what the common view is here today in America, that Christ at any moment can return and rapture out his people of God. And now that is very far from what the Bible teaches because again, God's people or his church has always been a people who suffer. And nowhere in the Bible do you see God taking his people out of suffering, but rather God is always in the midst of people who suffer. And in fact, God is the one who's sovereign over suffering. He, in fact, sends suffering to people. I believe it's Hebrews tells us that Christ learned obedience through his sufferings. And so that's the same example that we can follow today, too. Through our sufferings, we grow more and more like Christ and we conform more and more like him. But for the sake of this argument or this, you know, this topic, uh, people who hold dispensationalism pre-mill, dispensational pre-mill, they believe in being a preacher rapture. So go look at the first episode, you guys don't, don't know what that is. But it essentially means that at any moment, Christ can return for his people and rapture them out. And so typically, if you hold to this view, that means you view um, Israel and the church as two separate things. Basically, that the Jews are the people of God and the church, that is the Gentiles, are the people of God. Now, this cannot be more far from the truth, as we see in all scriptures, as we guys know that there is neither Jew nor Greek or Jew or Gentile in heaven. There's only one in Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm black or she's white or none of this stuff. What that does mean is that, well, let me go back. Basically, what I'm saying is we can have different roles and yet be different, but we're a one in Christ when we get to heaven. God doesn't view us as black or white or none of these things. He essentially sees us as wearing the righteousness of Jesus because in the end, it does not matter if you're black or white or Jew or Hispanic. None of those things matter. If you never trust in Jesus, you will die and go to hell. And that's essentially why Paul tells us that race does not matter. It only matters if you are one in Christ. Heirs of the promises seen in Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 17. And so a lot of the Jews in the Old Testament, they typically kind of held to their race. They, oh, my, my great, 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 great granddad is Abraham. Therefore, I'm a heir to the promises. But that was not what Paul was talking about in the Testament. The only ones who adhered to the promises was indeed Christ because he was a seed that was promised throughout the Old Testament. And so for us who place our faith in Christ, we receive these promises. But again, for dispensationalists, they would say that there is two separate people, God, the people of Israel and the church. And so Christ, he will rapture the church out of earth and God will be dealing with the people of God and doing what is known as a seven year tribulation period. And at the end of that period, Christ will return with the church 
and it would reign with Christ for a thousand years. And so that's kind of why the position I'm holding is what is known as historic premium. And many reformers have also held to this position, such as Charles Spurgeon and John Gill and Benjamin Keach. There's a couple of names. There's more than that. But those are the ones right off my head I can tell you guys. Now, what is historic premium? So it definitely differs as far as what is known as dispensation, like I just said. Number one, we believe in a posture rapture, which means that Christ will rapture the church at the end of the seven-year period or at the end of tribulation. Now, again, I believe my Amen brothers, we are all currently right now living in tribulation. Tribulation, my bad. This is all suffering for the people of God. And again, God's people have known nothing but suffering. But God is always in the midst of suffering, never taking them out, but always in the midst of suffering, doing life with us. Now, post-trips essentially means, again, that Christ will rapture the church at the end of the tribulation when he returns. And so this rapture would not be something secret, but it's something visible where all the people of God will see. And also even unbelievers, they will all see this because when Christ returns, that is when the rapture happens. So it's not something secret like the No Place Left Behind series talks about as a secret rapture, but then no, there's something that's public and visible that all people will see because again, this is when Christ returns his second coming. And so that's another reason why it's called historic premium because it's, we're trying to differentiate ourselves between dispensational. But again, let me go back and make it even more simpler. What is historic premium? So essentially historic premium is a literal interpretation of chapter 19 and 20 of Revelation chapter 20. Now, um, basically, essentially what I'm saying is that Christ, he said that he would come and establish his righteousness here on earth for a literal thousand years. But also those Christians who have been martyred throughout the ages or who have died for the faith, even us today, those of us who would die believing in Christ during a specific time period of tribulation or um, when he returns, we will all be vindicated. So vindicated simply means that their blood of all those martyrs or the people who have died for sin, because, you know, sin leads to death and we all die one day. Christ in the saints is going to balance out all the problems of the saints of God that suffered all kind of through church history. And so this a thousand year period, Christ is going to be vindicating the blood of the martyrs and all the things that happened wrongly to the saints. And he's going to be balancing everything out. And this period is going to be a perfect period where Christ rules. Now, there is some division as far as how we interpret the number a thousand. Some interpret the number a thousand to be a long period of time. You know, I told you guys it's a symbolic period. But for myself, for example, I will interpret it to be a literal thousand year number. Now, oftentimes, like I discussed in my last episode, people who usually say, you know, as far as pre-mill are concerned, People, when they hear about pre they think that we're saying that Christ is not reigning right now, that he's going to reign in some future time period and not reigning right now. And that's exactly what John Calvin states in his Institutes in Book 3, Chapter 25. He states this, that our doctrine limits the reign of Christ only to the 1,000 years, and that cannot be far from the truth. Even though I love Calvin so much dearly to my heart, he is definitely wrong on this because, again, I'm pre and I don't limit the reign of Christ to a thousand years. First Corinthians 15, verse 25 and 26 says this, this. Paul said that Christ is reigning now and he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy, as we know, that should be destroyed is death. So since death has not been destroyed, 
we know Christ is still reigning today, currently. Christ is not waiting to reign in some future time period, but rather Christ is reigning right now. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 20-23, we see that Paul discusses Christ's resurrection and ascension. He says this, which he who is God wrought in Christ, when he, God, raised him Christ from the dead and set him on, on the right hand in heavenly places, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world which is to come, and has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head of the head over all things of the church. So here in, in Ephesians, we see that Paul explained that Christ is indeed reigning. All things have been placed under his feet. Matthew 28, Jesus tells his disciples before he returns to heaven, and he tells them before they go out and share the gospel, he encourages them by saying these words, all authority in heaven has been given to me, and all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So essentially what Christ is saying is not some authority, but all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. So Christ is not only reigning in heaven, but he's reigning here right now on earth. Luke 1 verse 33 says this, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. So by no means do people who hold to the position of pre-mill limit the reign of Christ. Again, I just gave you several verses that talks about how Christ is currently reigning. Now, what I do believe is that the reign of Christ that's going on right now is through the hearts of the believers and through his church. This is more of a spiritual reign. Now, we always say that Christ has always been reigning, but he's now reigning as a God-man when he died and rose again, and now he's our mediator. Now, this is a spiritual reign. This is invisible reign, I guess you would say. Now, it can be seen, of course, that we see dead men coming to life. We see in the church how the devil is not able to stop this gospel from going forward. So it is visible in that sense. But Christ is not physically here with his people. So it's spiritual in that aspect. So I believe personally, um, from my conviction of scriptures, that the spiritual reign of Christ is going on right now is not the same reign here that we see in Revelation chapter 20. And so it is my conviction that the thousand years mentioned seven times in chapter 20 are specifically mentioned as a period of Satan's binding and of the time existing between the two resurrections. And so basically um, what's taught here is that this is a time period where Christ will be reigning with his people physically here on earth. Not a spiritual reign with Christ here, but essentially a physical reign. So Jesus is not merely the king of a age, but he's the king of all ages. He reigns over all ages. He's reigning right now. Not just a physical act, not in a physical aspect yet, but he's reigning spiritually. So this series, I will have maybe three more episodes. So today I want us to focus on, I guess, a biblical grounds of the number a thousand years. So is there biblical grounds that we can say for sure that we need to be interpreting this number a thousand years? Because I believe it all is rooted in that. If we can find biblical grounds of there actually being a literal thousand year, uh, I guess, in the Bible, then this kind of ends all debates. And I believe the Bible is kind of clear on this area. It's so simple. Once you see it, you understand why pre-meal makes the most sense. Now, I'm not talking about dispensationalism. I'm talking about historic pre-meal the position that the early church believed and as well as John's disciples. Now, um, the first thing I guess I'll point out today, I'm dealing with the first and second resurrection. I believe we're dealing with the first and second resurrection. 
it kind of helps us understand why pre-meal must be indeed the very um, biblical truth as far as an eschatology view. Now, before I even get to that, I believe there's also a simple reason as to why we have to interpret the number a thousand to be a literal number. Now, I know what some of my people may say as far as, you know, with KJ, the book of Revelation is what is known as apocalyptic literature, which means that we're not supposed to interpret this book as a narrative. All these numbers and, and signs and all these things is symbolic or something greater, which is indeed true because I do, in fact, view the book of Revelation as symbolism. But I believe, you know, God has given, given us things in history, not in history, but in literature to know how to identify symbolism such as metaphors and similes. We're able to know using literary um, terms like those to be able to identify what symbolism was not. But also the book of Revelation itself tells you what these symbols means. And so all these symbolism are pointing to real literal things that will happen in the future. Now, the first thing I must add is that John, he knows in fact how to, how to say a short period of time and a long period of time. So if John was trying to convey that the number of a thousand years is symbolic for a long period of time or a short period of time, he would have said it because he tells us in Revelation 21, verse one through three, this right here, listen to this. He says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great train in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and stood it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Now listen to this part, pay very attention. Until the thousand years were completed, after these things, he must be released for what? A short time. So the apostle John knows how to say a long period of time and a short period of time. And here he tells us that Satan will in fact indeed be released for a short time period of time, which implies he knows how to write a long period of time or a short period of time. But he doesn't do that here. He writes the number a thousand seven times, which means this number designated us to reveal to us to the Holy Spirit. This must be a real literal number. Now, that's just more of a, a simple uh, explanation as far as why we should interpret this number as a literal number. But let me get more to the more complex, I guess, argument behind why we should, in fact, interpret it literal. And that is going to be dealing with the issue of the first resurrection and a second resurrection. I believe the Bible is clear on this issue. But let's kind of dive in about this. Now, through understanding of, um, this issue as far as the first and second resurrection, we'll kind of come to the conclusion that there is some kind of time period in between the first and second resurrection that kind of makes it very clear what John is writing here in the Revelation is thousand years of what separates to two resurrections. Now, I know a lot of people, when they think of trying to, um, I guess, in this debate or try to, I guess, come up with different eschatological views, it's all rooted here in Revelation chapter 20. But I don't I don't think that the, the Bible is going to be teaching anything new in one section of scripture. So, for example, by reading the book of Revelation, I don't think we're going to be learning anything new that the whole counsel of God has not been teaching us all throughout scriptures. Now, I do know that, um, for example, the New Testament interprets the old, but I do believe the same thing applies to us for today. Let us let scripture interpret scripture and not try to interpret scriptures for ourselves, but let the word of God speak for itself. Because, again, 
we learn in Hebrews that Paul says the word of God is living and active. We don't have to try to interpret scripture and give it meanings that is not clear. We'll let the Bible do its job. Now, again, we're dealing with these two resurrections. Let me kind of read these verses again so you guys kind of know what I guess a general idea of what I'm talking about. Revelation 20, verse 1 through 6 and 11 through 15 says this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and stood it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And they had not received his mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Now pay attention. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and reign with him for a thousand years now it says this then i saw a great right throne and him who sat on it for those whose presence of earth fled away and no place was found for them and i saw the dead and the great and small standing before the throne and books were open and another book was open which is the book of life and the dead were judged for the things which were written in these books according to their deeds now if you would just listen to me right now you never read the book of Revelation. You never read a commentary. You never heard a sermon preached at Revelation. You never went to seek a pastor or your favorite teacher as far as guidance or how we're supposed to view Revelation. There is no other conclusion that you would come up with that simply the thousand years is what separates the first resurrection from the second. It's kind of clear from what John is saying here that there is a first resurrection where the people of God will be reigning with Christ. 4,000 years, and after that 1,000 years, there will be an, another time period where the people who are in hell right now will come out and be raised and they're the new glorified bodies to be sent to the second hell or the second death, I meant to say. Now, um, do we have any other scriptures in the Bible that talks about a first and a second resurrection? And we actually do. Jesus himself teaches in the concept of a first and second resurrection in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, he gave him authority to execute a judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear the voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, this is not a works-based salvation. This is not teaching us that if you do good, you will go to heaven. If you do bad, you go to hell because no one here on earth can truly do good. The very essence and definition of good is perfection because the standard of goodness is God. And so I know oftentimes many people think, well, I'm not as worse a sinner off as Hitler or the devil. But the fact is, you really are as worse as the devil and Hitler because you are a sinner. Their standard is not if you have sinned worse than your brother, but their standard is if you sin, period. The Bible says if you do not continue in all things written in the law, you are cursed. 
which means if a person sins one time at all in his life, he will go to hell. And so please do not pay mind to this idea that if you do good, you go to heaven. That's not the Bible teaches. In fact, it says you can't do good at all. Now, Jesus here teaches us that there is, in fact, a resurrection of the good uh, of the good and a resurrection of the evil. Now, we also know this is not just a New Testament reality, but this is also an Old Testament reality. And it's seen here um, in Daniel chapter 12. It says this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace with everlasting contentment. And the KJV says to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contentment. Now, many who are the position of Amiel say that this resurrection of the just and unjust all took place at the same time. But I don't believe any of the passages I read so far or stated talks about or has given us a time frame as far as when these two events will happen. Now, many Amiels, they will bring up this idea um, of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. He talks about in Matthew 25, verse 31 to 34 and verse 46. He states this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set his sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And these will go into everlasting punishment and the righteous into eternal life now the idea here is that many amios will say this verse or these verses tells us that when christ returns there will be in fact a resurrection of the just and unjust well that doesn't teach us anything else the bible had never taught us because here we're not given a time frame again when these two events actually happen it just says when christ returns there will in fact be a resurrection of both the just and the just unjust and the just as christ gathers the elect and unelect now, it is my conviction, just like how the New Testament interprets the old, we must again let scripture interpret scripture. And for us today, we're actually given a revelation when these two resurrections happen. The first takes place, and there's a time period in between, which is known as the Millennium Kingdom, or a thousand year period. And then the second resurrection takes place for the dead or the unjust. So, this first resurrection is a time period for all of those who are in Christ. And then we have a gap of a thousand years. And then we have, after a thousand years, a second resurrection for all those who are in hell right now who would get out and get their new bodies just meant for the second death or the final resting place of the lake of fire. Now, do we have any other passage in scriptures that kind of tell us that idea other than Revelation chapter 20? Because, again, let's let the whole counsel of God speak to us on this issue, not just one passage, even though one passage is good enough. What does the whole counsel of God say? Now, I do believe many people probably have never looked at this passage in the Old Testament, but it's kind of clear. It's in Isaiah 24, verse 21 and 23. It states this. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisons in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. After many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory be forever, will be before his elders, I make the state. Now notice how the text states that there will be a time period between these enemies of God who will be punished, who were in prison, and then we're told that after this, 
the part, so basically it says what I'm saying is um he's M is a God when it says um the Lord will punish the host of the heaven, talking about angels, and then we see uh, a God's enemies, the kings here on earth. Um Revelation 20 is so clear what this is talking about. So I don't think there's any other speculation we can come up with or a satis satisfactory explanation on these chapters, on this chapter, I meant to say, other than Revelation 20. But notice how, again, this text states that there will be a time period between when these enemies of God will be punished. It says, after many days, they'll be punished once they're in prison. And Revelation 20 lets us know what this is talking about. Now, not only does Isaiah 24 paint a picture of a time period between the first and the second resurrection, but we also have what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 24. He says this, but now is Christ risen from the dead and became the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward, they that are Christ at his coming, they come to the end. He shall be delivered up to the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall be put down all authority and power. So this portion of the chapter before us appears at first glance to require something like the period of time between the resurrection of the just and unjust. Because again, uh, what Paul is teaching us here is that there's a gap, as you guys know, from the time period of Christ's um, death and so now we have not risen yet. So there's a gap between Christ's first resurrection, which he went back and ascended to heaven. And so now well, we've risen. So Jesus said to them, the sons of this age, Mary and the women are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore. For they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now notice a couple of key words that Jesus says to the people who attain this resurrection from the dead. Number one, they are considered worthy. Number two, they are like angels. Number three, they are called sons of God. And number four, they are called sons of the resurrection. Now this language used here does not convey the idea there seems to be a general resurrection. That is, that there would be both a resurrection of the just and unjust at the same exact time. But rather, the resurrection that Jesus is talking about here seems to convey the idea of only being a resurrection of the resurrection. I mean, resurrection of the just when he returns. Now, this is the perfect example of what Paul talks about in Philippians 3 as well. He states this in Philippians 3 verse 11, Philippians 3 verse 10 through 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Now, this must be the resurrection of the saints because if Paul was referring to a general resurrection, he would not have to strive to obtain his resurrection by any means possible, but he wants this special resurrection, hence it's for believers only. Paul also tells us at the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Verse 16 to 17 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So three things that Paul states of, I guess, as a sequence of events. 
when Christ returns. So number one, the second coming of Christ will be number one. That's the first event. Number two, the dead in Christ will all arise. And what that simply means is, for example, everyone from the time of Genesis to the end of the Bible, and also all the Christians of all ages, basically, essentially from after the Bible is written, of all ages will rise. So we were to die today. If you to die today, you're in heaven right now. You will all rise and get your glorified body. And let's say if Christ will return tomorrow, all of us who are alive at Christ's return, we will be, be raptured in the sky. But notice how this text says the dead in Christ will rise. And what we see in Revelation 20 is a gap between the first resurrection and the second resurrection, because the second resurrection was talking about unbelievers being judged for their sins they did in this life. But in the first resurrection, seen in Revelation chapter 20, talks about believers. It's the same thing Paul is talking about here, that dead in Christ will rise first. And those Christians who are alive will be caught up in a rapture to reign with him in the millennium period. So we only see one resurrection, and this is for those in Christ, the resurrection of the righteous. But again, let me keep going. So in 1 Corinthians, I talked about this earlier, but I had the wrong translation. I think I was reading like the, the KJV. I don't know why the KJV. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the KJV. I just don't like saying that the eggs and the dials. But here's my translation in the NSV. It states this, but each in its own order, Christ the first fruits again, after that, those who are Christ and his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God of the Father, when he has abolished all rule, authority, and power, for he, is, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first roots of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But there is an order to this, this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all those who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority. So what I was stating earlier is that there's been a gap between Christ's resurrection and all those who are in Christ being raised. Because again, Christ has not come back yet. There has been a gap between Christ's first resurrection and the resurrection of the just, because he hasn't came back yet. And there's also another, there must be another gap. There is a first gap between Christ's first resurrection and the resurrection of all the saints, then there must be another, there must, it can be a possible another gap between when Christ returns with his saints in the, the new age and also uh, the time period of when those who are all lost in hell right now, when they're judged for their sins, that is the second death. Now, notice again from 1 Corinthians two things of sequence of events. Number one, when Christ returns, only those in Christ will be raised. We saw that in multiple scriptures. And then number two, it says, after he returned, he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. So if you go back to Revelation chapter 20, is this not exactly what John is stating to us about the, uh, the two resurrections? Again, in Revelation 20, let me just read these verses and I close for us today. I don't want this episode to be too long, <laughs> but hopefully this is kind of useful, I guess, helpful, um, helping you guys realize that um, there isn't a general resurrection, but there is a gap. Not a gap. There's two separate events. There's a resurrection with the just and there's a resurrection with the unjust. And the gap in between this period, it's possible that this is the thousand year millennium kingdom that 
the Apostle John talks about here. Again, those verses I read earlier, it states this. Um, after the devil was thrown into the abyss, it states this, that it is shut and set over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then it says this, Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, or had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, they came to life and ran with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, that is, the unjust, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Then John says this, Then I saw a great, great, throne, a great, great, <laughs> great white throne and him who sat upon it, for whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead, listen to this, the dead were judged for things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now think about this. Is this exactly not what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 15? Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15 that um, the last enemies that are to be defeated is um, death. And in Revelation 20, John is using the same language. He's telling us that there is a first resurrection that which Jesus talks about specifically geared towards only believers. And we see at Thessalonians that when Christ returns, only those in Christ will rise first. And then you see in Revelation, it tells us that this is the first resurrection. These people who rise first are of Christ. From what Paul tells us, I guess parallel that with Revelation, you see there's a first resurrection, which is the the one for the just, and then it says there's a thousand year period where the devil is bound and all these saints are reigning here on earth with Christ. And then after that time period, there is another resurrection. But this is not something that's pleasant. This is something that's going to lead to the second death where all those of all time who have not trusted in the Lord, who are right now currently in hell, and maybe somebody listening to this right now will be going to hell. You will be in the second death. And this is for this is the second resurrection. This is a resurrection of the unjust. But what is the hope? What is the hope of talking about Revelation? Well, what is the hope that we have for talking about the first and second resurrection? Well, number one, of course, I want people to know correct theology. Of course, Paul tells about to watch over our doctrine and Timothy. But it's good to have correct theology. But having correct theology and not knowing the Lord are two different things. I rather you know the Lord and let God over a period of time change your theology. And again, nobody here on earth has it all figured out. When you get to heaven, you're gonna be shot at all different things that God reveals to you. But what's more importantly, as you be a part of this first resurrection. Now I know I spent a lot of my time talking about millennium and why the millennium 
or I guess the first and second resurrection idea proves some sort of concept of possible a thousand year period between the two. But what's more important again is that you yourself listen to this and be a part of the first resurrection because what John tells us, it says, blessed are those who are part of the resurrection. But in a sense, it's cursed of you if you're a part of the second resurrection. And again, God can certainly throw you easily to hell. He doesn't, it doesn't take much for God to kill someone. Because again, God is the creator of all life. You should fear him who can kill both the body and the soul and throw that person into hell. That's what the Bible tells us. So for you today who are not yet trusting in Christ, please let today be the day that you will run to the cross place your faith in Christ and believe in him. But again, hopefully this idea or this episode will kind of help you have a better idea of why it's possible and it must be possible that they have to be a thousand, this number a thousand must be interpreted literal because this number helps us see what um, separates the two directions. Now, if John were to simply say there's a long period of time between the two, I mean, that still makes sense because we still have some sort of gap between the first and second, res second resurrection. But I believe the reason why God uses John to write the number 1,000 is so that we would know how long is it between the first and second resurrection when the devil will be thrown to hell and also when the rest of his people, because it's possible to be a child of God and a child of the devil. Thank you, guys. Next week, or not next week, <laughs> maybe later this week, I'll drop part three. And so in part three, we'll be dealing with the devil, actually. Is he bound? Is he here on earth? Or where is the devil? We're talking about, is the devil bound? And if so, how so? So thank you, guys.